Good morning. It's, uh, the Haiti team is going to be heading home today. Uh, they're probably, let's see, it's 1045 here. That means it's 145 in Haiti. And that means that church services in Haiti are about halfway through. Uh, because they're about seven, eight hours long. Uh, no, not quite. But you think, you think our American service is long? Just go over to Haiti, okay? We got, you got about a tenth of the size of this, double the people, and when they break for Sunday school, all they do is turn the pews around. And then they, they have another class right then and there where they're sitting. It's amazing. So the, the, the team in Haiti, uh, Doug, Monica, Carrie, Will, Emily, Carly, who am I missing? Luke. Kristen and Carrie and Monica. Okay, I think I got everybody. They have had an amazing week. A lot of challenges, but a lot of great uh, successes as well. I know God's been at work over there. I can't wait uh, to have, get them back here next Sunday. We're going to let them share a slideshow, uh, probably even some video and uh, testimony. You won't want to miss it. So be here next Sunday to get a report from the team and uh, we're really, really looking forward to getting them back. I know Mike is especially looking to get Carrie back, and, and Lloyd as well, uh, as they've been uh, dads without moms this week. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. And as you're turning there, uh, what inspired me to uh, turn to the book of Kings uh, is really some of the recent developments in the Middle East. Uh, as we look in the Middle East today, we see what, was, what we were told as the Arab Spring, which was an, now, by now a number of springs ago. And there was an uh, uprising happening, a, a democratic uprising of the people. There was overthrow of dictators. There was uh, a great anticipation of what was to come. Nations were engaging in civil war, trying to... Uh, throw off dictators and bring in freedoms. And then they're now voting in new leaders to take over the ones that they had since booted out. Well, that's what the Kings is all about. As you read through First and Second Kings, as you read through First and Second Chronicles, what you are reading is essentially a history of the kings of Israel. You're reading about... Uh, of course, Saul and David and Solomon, but more than that, you're reading about the fragmentation of the nation of Israel. And as we come to 1 Kings 13, we are entering into the beginning stages of a fragmenting of the nation of Israel. 1 Kings chapter 13 we're going to begin with verse 1 to 10 today. The title of my message is Mercy, Irony, and Tragedy at Bethel. Part 1, The Idolater is Healed. Mercy, tragedy, uh, mercy, Irony, and Tragedy at Bethel. Part 1, The Idolater is Healed. We're going to be in 1 Kings 13 for just two Sundays, today and next week. And I want us to stand right now as we read verses 1 through 10, our opening part of this two-part series in 1 Kings 13. 1 Kings 13, beginning in verse 1 to verse 10. 
And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. And Jeroboam, he was the king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam stood by the altar, a pagan altar, to burn incense. Then he cried out, the man of God did, against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah, by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice those pagan priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And this man of God gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall be split apart and the ashes on it poured out. Verse 4, So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him! Then his hand which he stretched out toward him withered so that it could not, so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar also was split apart, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please, please, entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And so the man of God entreated the Lord. And the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Verse 7, Then the king said to the man of God, Come, come home, come home with me and refresh yourself and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So the man of God went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Heavenly Father, Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see clearly uh, the spiritual truths of this story. May your Holy Spirit um, especially... Guide us now and reveal to us your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Excuse me. Verse 1 again. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Here we have a really unique story. We have uh, a man of God, unnamed. We don't know his name. Fascinating that we don't even know who this man was. He remains unnamed throughout the rest of Scripture. And he's only really found in in chapter 13 here of 1 Kings. uh, Referenced to a little bit later as well, later on in Kings. But this man, whoever he was, we know where he came from. He came from the region of Judah which if he was going from Judah to Bethel, he would have been traveling south to north. And he is making this one to two day trek, by, perhaps by foot, um, to visit a man named Jeroboam. History tells us that there was a recent uh, schism between the tribes of Israel at this time. This was after King Solomon's death. We're looking about the mid-900s B.C. 
Solomon's son was a man named Rehoboam, with an R. And Solomon's son Rehoboam had been harsh with the people. In fact, so harsh had he been that ten of the twelve tribes of Israel had broken off from Rehoboam's reign and aligned themselves in the north. They had aligned themselves behind a man, Jeroboam, with a J. You have Rehoboam to the south, and you have Jeroboam to the north. And these, the Jews, the ten tribes, aligned themselves with Jeroboam to the north, who had been a servant in Solomon's uh, administration. Jeroboam was um, an interesting man. Uh, he, he went through many stages in his life. Early on, if you were to look at chapter 12, the early parts of chapter 12, you would see Jeroboam was a man of the people. He was going to King Rehoboam and beseeching him to ease the burdens upon the people. Jeroboam wanted uh, lower taxes and less government regulation. We don't know what that's like in a place like California. I mean, right? But that's what was going on there. And Jeroboam was a man of the people. Read chapter 12, verse 4. He was lobbying on behalf of the people. Rehoboam, please, please, ease the burden. Ease the tax. Ease the work of the people. They are tired. But like so many politicians, Jeroboam lost his way when he himself came into power. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom aligned with him to the north. They broke off from Rehoboam, and they were quite a handful to manage. On the one hand, these ten tribes to the north, they were rebels. They had broken off from their former king. But on the other hand, there were many devout Jews still to the north who wanted to continue to worship in the temple at Jerusalem. But there was only one problem. Jerusalem was in the south. Jerusalem was still under the control of King Rehoboam of the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam to the north, he knew this, and he was concerned what the people might do if he permitted them to go back to Jerusalem on religious pilgrimages to keep the Jewish feasts and holidays. And it says there on your outline in 1 Kings 12.27, he thought to himself, if these people go up to offer sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn back to their Lord, their master, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And then they'll kill me and go back to him. That was Jeroboam's concern. Clearly, Jeroboam was more concerned about retaining his power than about letting the people worship God freely. So Jeroboam devised a plan. Just before chapter 13 here, look at chapter 12. Look at, the, uh, look at verse 28. It says, Therefore, the king asked advice. This is Jeroboam to the north. He asked advice. And he made two calves of gold and said to the people, Is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Here, here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. 
Look at verse 31. He made shrines on the high places. He made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam even ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah and offered sacrifices on the altar. Jeroboam, friends, embraced political power over fidelity to God. He created idols for his people. He urged them to worship golden calves. We've heard that story before. While Jews in Jerusalem were celebrating the religious holidays of the Lord God, Jeroboam in the north was creating his own holidays and sacrificial system. The question for us today is, what are we substituting for God? Jeroboam substituted a great many things. Instead of worshiping God, he gave them calves, golden calves. Instead of keeping the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, he gave them pagan holidays. He made up his own. And the question of our day is, what are we substituting for God? What do you love more than God? What elicits your attention more than God? What fuels your finest work? To whom do you devote your highest thoughts and feelings? What are you substituting for God? Jeroboam created idols for the people. He created false temples, high places, and he stood at one such altar... And an unnamed man of God from Judah approached him. Look again at chapter 13, verse 1. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn the incense. Then the man of God cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, O altar, altar! Thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. Verse 3, And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall be split apart and ashes on it poured out. Here's... Jeroboam in the north, making his pagan altars, about to burn incense, and up comes a devout religious Jew from Judah. And he calls him out. He says, I know what you're doing. I know you're leading these people astray. You may be the king, but I'm calling you out. The message of the unnamed man of God was clear. He said, your actions are totally unacceptable to God. And to demonstrate that God was displeased, the prophet of God offered Jeroboam two signs. First, in verse 2, a sign that would come to pass many, many years from now. He spoke of a king, a, a child, Josiah, who would be born. Turns out it was King Josiah some 300 years later. And that this child, who would grow up to be a king, would tear down pagan altars such as these, burn 
pagan priests such as these, even the bones of the priests of Jeroboam's day on, that, on these very altars. And sure enough, you can jot this down. I think I might have included it on the back of your outline. If you read 2 Kings 23, you see this prophecy fulfilled. 2 Kings 23. We're not going to turn there today. But you see the man of God's prophecy perfectly fulfilled later on in the book of Kings. But then he gave a second sign. Because knowing full well that a prophecy many hundreds of years from now probably would not convince Jeroboam to change his ways, the man of God gave a second sign to demonstrate the displeasure of God. This second sign is mentioned in verse 3, and it was to come at that very hour. He gave a sign the same day, saying, quote, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. The judgment upon Jeroboam and his pagan practices had been forecast. It had been announced. How would he react? Notice verse 4. So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, O Lord, I've sinned against you. Have mercy on me. No. That he stretched out his hand and said, O Lord, I repent of my sin. O God, spare me this judgment. No. O Lord, You have sent this man of God to me to correct me, to reprove me. Tell me now what to do. How can I restore your favor? No. Instead, Jeroboam reached out his hand from the altar and said, Arrest him. Arrest him. Arrest that man who has the gall to challenge me. I'm the king. Arrest him. Many today do not wish to be told what to do. They don't like to be told that their lifestyle is wrong. Many people today don't like to be corrected, ever. They don't like to be reproved. They don't like their behavior challenged. They don't like their ideology challenged. They don't like their religious views challenged. And when someone so much as suggests that the status quo of the culture um, might be at odds with God's truth, you see a giant uproar, don't you? I think of uh, this past week, uh, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. I don't know if you heard about this story. Um, I read his comments uh, top to bottom. I wanted to be really clear on what he had said in a couple interviews. And uh, the man made uh, no uh, disparaging remark uh, toward those of homosexual orientation. He made no ad hominem attack 
He made uh, no gutter comment whatsoever. He simply put out the idea, his idea, an idea from Scripture, um, that he's concerned about a culture that uh, challenges the Bible's teaching on marriage. And he received so much of a wrathful response for these comments. I encourage you to read them. I'm I'm not going to read them myself here. You can go search his comments and you can judge for yourself. I read them. I wanted to be sure that I wasn't supporting a man who was being disparaging or or just, you know, rude uh, or saying something unnecessary, but very much the opposite was the case. He was challenging an ideology. He was challenging a, a, a growing norm of culture. He was challenging a viewpoint. And simply because he challenged it, he was receiving rebuke from many. Mayors of cities saying, you're not welcome here. And the list goes on. People don't like to be told that they're wrong, do they? They don't like to be challenged. Me, I love it. I'm serious. I love it. When you guys shake my hand and go, great job, Pastor, great sermon. I like the sermon. That was really good. Good job. Wow, wonderful. I can't stand it. I want you to say, but what about this? But what about this? Well, I don't know about this. I want you guys to engage me. I want, I want challenge. I want challenge. I love to be challenged. I love it when people challenge my faith. I love it when they challenge my ideologies. I love it when they challenge my politics. I love it when they challenge my understanding of Scripture. I love it. I embrace it. And I don't turn around and make disparaging remarks to people who do so. Shame on them. We should be a people that welcomes correction and rebuke, that welcomes challenges to our ideas. Why? Because they make us stronger. They make us study harder. They make us dig through the Word deeper. They make us more sure, uh, more attentive to the fact that we need to be sure of our convictions before we go out and blabber our mouth. Jeroboam, he didn't want to be corrected. Had no interest in correction. Had no interest in reproof. Had no interest in someone even having another viewpoint. Another viewpoint. And so he pointed at the man and said, Arrest him. Arrest him. He can't talk to me like that. Get him out of here. He's not going to be in my town. That business isn't going to be in my town. Get him out. Are you stubborn in the face of correction? Or are you humble and teachable? Do you welcome a challenge to your ideas? Or are you like Jeroboam in so much of today's culture? Jeroboam was proud and unteachable. And for that, he received God's discipline. Look in the middle of verse 4. Go back to verse 4. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him! And then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. And the altar also was split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. A withered hand. 
Leprosy, we don't know. We're not told. Perhaps. The altar, the pagan altar, split in two. The ashes on the altar, uh, the ashes from an animal sacrifice of some kind, poured out. Just as the man of God had said. When God's judgment was only a forecast by an unnamed prophet, Jeroboam ignored it. But now that he had physically seen the consequences of his actions, his tune changed. Look at verse 6. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, I like you now. Please, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. I wonder what what would we do uh, if we were the man of God here? Uh, Would we ask for the healing of a very, very stubborn and wicked man? Or would we leave him in the justice that he had brought upon himself? Would you help the one who just moments ago sought your wrongful arrest? Or would you repay evil with good? The man of God made a pretty swift decision. Middle of verse 6. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as before. The idolater was healed. Jeroboam received mercy. Total, unmerited mercy. Reminds us of the mercy we get from Jesus Christ. Amen? Total, unmerited mercy. I'm not so sure I would have done what the man of God did right there. I'm not so sure that I would have looked upon someone who just moments ago said, get him out of here, and then turned around and showed him mercy. I'd like to think I would. I don't know. My flesh might get the best of me. But here we have the man of God looking at the man who wanted him booted out. And he shows him mercy. He prays for him. And God heals him. That's how Jesus is with us. We've said time and again to our Lord, get out of here. We don't want you in our life. And yet He waits with open arms to receive us back. God has demonstrated time and again His love toward us. And that while we held on to our sins, Christ died for us. While we held on to our stubbornness, Christ paid that price. This is a picture of Jesus Christ's mercy and grace toward us. Mercy and grace totally unmerited and yet received freely by faith in Christ. We're coming to the end now of this first part. And the first part of 1 Kings 13 ends on a very strange note. Look at verse 7 to verse 10. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you, were going, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, 
Nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. I don't get it. Jeroboam's invitation seemed sincere enough, did it not? Why did the man of God not accept his hospitality? What prevented the man of God from going with the king, going back to his home, being refreshed, being encouraged, uh, being uh, rewarded for his work? Why did the man of God not go with Jeroboam? Well, it it states it quite plainly in verse 9. For starters, God said, don't go. God told the man of God, don't you go into anyone's home when you get to Bethel. That northern kingdom, there are some religious practices taking place up there. There are some ideologies taking place up there. You go up there, you speak my words to that culture, you show mercy when it's uh, when you're able to but you don't walk into their homes and participate and give them the blessing of being hospitable to you god said no don't do it don't go in the home Don't go in the home. Going in the home in the ancient Near East was a sign of approval. It was a sign of um, condoning one's actions. And so you have the stories like Jesus in the Gospels, where Jesus uh, goes and he eats with sinners. And the Pharisees look at him and say, you can't eat with sinners. Because when you eat with sinners, you're obviously condoning their actions. You can't do that, Jesus. Even the disciples would try to persuade him otherwise. And yet Jesus would go. He indicated that His ministry was for the sick, for the sinners, not just the well. But God, can't get around this in verse 9, God told this man of God, don't go in that home. Don't go in their homes. But the words of verse 8 drive more to the heart of the matter. Look at verse 8. It says, But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house... I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. That first part speaks more to what is happening. The man of God knew that uh, that Jeroboam was trying to pay him back for his mercy. Rehoboam said it himself in verse 7. He said, come home with me. Refresh yourself. I'll give you a reward. The man of God did not wish to have his act of mercy repaid by lavish monetary rewards or fine foods and delicacies. You see, God's mercy can't be bought. It can't be bargained for. And it certainly can't be repaid. On your outline, the Bible teaches us this. 
Always extend mercy. Always extend mercy. But never for earthly, earthly reward or worldly recognition. Always extend mercy. But never for earthly reward or worldly recognition. You know, uh, it is always tempting when we do these things in Haiti... And I think it's a temptation of, of any kind of church effort or, or, or non-profit organization or, or Christian ministry that goes out and, and feeds many and, and brings relief to many and, and performs great works, humanitarian works and others. It's a temptation of churches and non-profits and organizations of all shapes and sizes to want to go and... and Get recognition for it. To call up the Orange County Register, hey, come on, could you send a reporter and, and write up what we did? To call in the media, to call in others, to broadcast it in such a way that says, look at us, look how great we are. Wow, what a wonderful job we did. This man of God, however, He didn't want His mercy to be showcased. He didn't want His mercy to uh, be recognized by the world. It was between Him and the Lord. He didn't want repayment because mercy can't be bought. He didn't want compensation because mercy cannot be bargained for. He didn't want reward because mercy cannot be repaid. So when you extend mercy, last part of your outline, when you extend mercy, extend mercy freely. No strings. Freely. Just as Jesus has offered us salvation as a free gift. Extend mercy freely. Just as Jesus offered us salvation as a free gift. That's what mercy is. It is not getting what you deserve. It is someone who, who, who walks up to you and extends to you something you did not deserve. You did not merit, and yet you are given it. Jeroboam did not deserve to be healed at all. He did not deserve to be prayed for. He did not deserve to receive any attention from the man of God, and yet the man gave it freely. That's how we show mercy. We always show it but not for earthly reward, not for worldly recognition. We show it freely. We don't wait. Hold on to mercy. Keep it in our back pocket until we receive a little ourselves. Today we read of great irony and mercy in a town called Bethel. Irony in that a very stubborn and wicked king, stubborn to the very end, still received the favor of God. He still received the mercy of God. Ironic as it is. Next week, we shall explore even greater irony and also tragedy at the end of 1 Kings 13 as we see what is the conclusion of the man of God. But as for today, always extend mercy freely, never for earthly reward, never for worldly recognition. Always extend it freely, just as Jesus has offered us salvation 
as a free gift by grace through faith in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for this story, God. It's, uh, it's always good to go back and to pull out the stories of old that are so rich in application, so rich in meaning. We see, God, here a story of, of great irony and yet mercy from You. Unmerited favor, God, that You, through the man of God, showed to Jeroboam. God, help us to mimic that free giving of mercy. And we think mainly, too, of Your Son, who gave His life completely that we might have everlasting life by faith in Him. What a story. The story of Jesus. The story of this man of God. Lord, may You help us by Your Spirit convict our hearts, help us to walk in these footsteps. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.